Welcome to Inside the Founder Studio. We're a podcast dedicated to uncovering the grit that make founders, entrepreneurs, and innovative thinkers tick in one of the most crucial industries on the planet, supply chain. To learn more, you can check us out at InsideTheFounderStudio.com. But for now, let's hand it to our host, Ryan Schreiber. Hey, everybody. Uh, Welcome back to Inside the Founder Studio. I'm Ryan Schreiber. And today I have a guest that is pretty personal to me. I have Noam Frankel, uh, who's currently the founder and CEO of Freight Friend. Uh, But Noam has been um, an industry innovator for over 30 years, uh, you know, going back to deregulation. He's low-key probably one of the most important people in the history of the industry uh, in brokerage, uh, particularly. And, you know, he's a person who gave me a chance when I needed it uh, desperately. Uh, when I was out of, out of school and, and couldn't find work, the recession, et cetera, like I walked into Echo and uh, and Noam gave me a job uh, and gave me a chance, and then you know we started a company together, and and we've been friends since then. So Noam, thanks a lot for joining me. Uh, I'll say on this podcast right now, thanks for everything you've done for me in my career, and uh, and I'm excited to have you on today. So thanks for joining me, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. I was really looking forward to this conversation, and thank me you too. for all all the time that we've spent together. It's been yeah great to work together in the same company, and great to watch you become such a spokesperson and and brain for the industry now. I'm excited to have you on and talk to you about your journey uh, because I think it'll be, it'll be a really interesting one for everyone to learn about it. I mean, it tracks, it certainly tracks like the evolution of transportation over since, you know, over the last actually 40 years now, I guess, right. Deregulation is 41 years ago. Um, Not to date you, but (laughs) But certainly, uh, certain that'll be interesting. And 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 as you know, uh, I really want to learn about kind of how people have done dealt with some of the trials and tribulations. So it'll be interesting to talk about kind of when you left backhaulers and and you know you left earlier and kind of how that was. Why don't you for for starters maybe talk or give an introduction to today as is freight friend? Why don't you give an introduction to? To, to who Fre- uh, what Freight Friend is and, and what you guys are working on there. And then we'll certainly come back to that in the journey. And it'll, I think people will understand why you're working on it. Yeah, thank you. So I would say for 40 years, my focus on training a lot of people in the industry has been around the importance of building relationships, that a truckload industry is an industry of relationships. And that's a key element of the process. So Freight Friend is called Freight Friend. Uh, it's a cloud-based AI truckload AI power truckload procurement solution that helps shippers, brokers, and carriers match the right capacity to the right freight. So we believe in building relationships first and then driving automation to increase efficiencies for everybody. Um, we help people do that through an intuitive carrier CRM, our dynamic routing guide, which we call Capacity Guru, and Freight Guru, which drives intelligent freight matches to carriers. So that that's uh, Freight Friend really is a, is a transition for really what I think I've been teaching and promoting in the mantra. I've been you know, I'm on my soapbox for 40 years, certainly which you got a lot of when you first started. I get a lot of it now, too. Yes. So. <laughs> Uh, and I and I agree with it, uh, which is I think why we've worked so well together. Um, it, it always came very uh, intuitively to me. Um, why don't you so so 
you know, before we get into like a professional career, why don't you kind of talk to me a little bit about or tell everybody a little bit about what it was like growing up? Where are you from? How'd you grow up? Um, what was it like being little gnome? Um, and, and, you know, and then and we get into, get into that other stuff later. Yeah. So I'm what's known as a CK, a clergy's kid. Um, my father was, uh, I'm Jewish. My father was a clergyman. So we bounced around a fair amount when I was growing up and young. But for the most part, uh, after fourth grade, I grew up in the north suburbs of Chicago. Um, uh, went to high school there. Uh, went to college out east in Philadelphia and then came back to Chicago and really had been there ever since. And uh, I mean, Chicago was a hub of transportation originally through railroads, through highways, and it became a hub of logistics as well, which was interesting. It didn't have to be that way. When you were a kid, did you have any interest in transportation? Like you just said there was, you know, used to be. Did you have any interest in it or? Or like everybody else, no, you just fell ass backwards into it. No, I would say, actually, I went to college and uh, went through two years of playing Frisbee and writing fiction. And but uh, majored in economics because that's where most of my uh, courses were. And my senior year, uh, where I could take a lot of flexible uh, courses, I took a course in the Wharton in the graduate Wharton school called Economics of Transportation. And I was uh, fascinated right away. I would say as a kid, I always loved maps. I think that's true for all of us. We love maps. And I think uh, it's, uh, I miss taking out a map and marking your whole route and just tell, letting Google Maps tell us what to do. It's part of us all becoming brain dead. Um, but uh, the this course, economic transportation really drove my interest. And then I left school in 82, 83, similar period of economically to when you graduated law school, um, looking for a job in public sector and transportation, regional RTA, which is Chicago, uh, mm -hmm. Chicago metro areas, regional transportation, CTA, and there were no jobs. So uh, I started expanding my search to consulting firms and ended up meeting a consulting, a consultant who was uh, helping people uh, um, get a helping companies get authority to utilize their private fleet to backhaul other people's freight. Cause that was only will, just then available. Slow down. Right. Cause you know, we'll get, you know, dera obviously we'll get into, we'll get into that, that piece of the journey. Cause that's going to be really, really interesting. Um, I think a struggle for us in this conversation is I actually, I mean, even though I've known you at this point for 12 years, 11 years, like I learned stuff about, transportation every time I talk to you. So, but so, so, so let's go back. So you were younger, uh, when you were growing up, I know you play ultimate Frisbee a lot now. Did you, was that like a thing when you were a kid? Did you play sports? Did you have, what were your hobbies? Like, were you really into music? Like, I, you know, what, what was that? What did you do when you were a kid? What was it like being little you? Uh, little me was a fairly sheltered life. Um, uh, definitely Jewish though. My father was a cantor. That's the singing person in a synagogue. So music has been a huge part of our family forever, and it's a huge part of our extended family. My oldest brother was clearly going to be playing music since he was like 11, and by 13 he was jamming in a Gata Davida with bands in our living room, and I'd be sitting there listening to it. So music was a big part of our family for sure. Um, I played sports, um, but couldn't participate uh, in most organized sports because I had celebrated the Sabbath on Saturday when everything mm -hmm, was occurring. Mm -hmm. 
So actually, the first time I started to play organized sports was my sophomore year of college when I found Ultimate Frisbee uh, and have really played ever since. And it's had a that had a big impact uh, on my life as well as uh, getting involved in American Backcolors. And actually, those two things uh, kind of followed side by side, which is an interesting story. Yeah, definitely. When um, you were obviously a good student, you said, you know, obviously because you went to the University of Pennsylvania, which you you, you intimated earlier because you said Wharton, but um, you said you kind of lived a shelter, you lived a bit of a sheltered life. Was there a part of you that struggled with with that or 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 did you kind of not know what you didn't know? Like, was there a part of you that like didn't feel, I don't know, how, how did you, would you, did you want to be more fulfilled? Did you like, were you kind of trying to reach out or did you feel like, Hey, I had a good childhood. Everything was fine. Like, you know, my family was great. And you know, what was, what was that kind of experience like? Cause obviously so, the school part must've been easy. I would guess any other, just from knowing you. any other clergy kids who are listening to this podcast will have a pretty decent idea, right? Family uh, is the community and the congregation, right? And so that really was a big chunk of our family life. Uh, my father was an incredible, incredible person, really beloved through communities all around the U.S., but that was his whole life. Um, so, and I would say my world was small. And then when I went to high school, I went to a public high school. I went to a grade school. I went to a Jewish day school for grade school. And suddenly I'm thrust into this, you know, 1500 person per class mm -hmm. high school, which was vast. I wanted to get beyond my world, but, but I would was not very experienced. So uh, I would say one of the things that Ultimate did is help me really come into my own, expand my world and be surrounded by some big personalities who had a lot of amazing interests. And, um, but yeah, I, I, I would say I was smart enough to do well in school and, uh, and, and powered with the right motivational things that got, my, uh, got me going. I, my brain would definitely start working and being really creative. Did you have a job growing up or, or what was Oh you yeah, I was working by the age of 12. Uh, by the age of, oh, this is a good question that I forgot. By the age of 15, my sophomore, junior year of high school, I was the manager of materials flow at Esma Chemicals. Esma Chemicals was a dental technician, a PhD who was building electro polishing units for Jesus. cleaning braces or cleaning dental, whatever. And um, not adhering to child labor laws, apparently, but go ahead. Well, so I was, yeah, we, we had very little money growing up, right? My dad was very spiritual and not very business oriented. Uh, my mother worked her whole life too. She was ended up having a PhD, but not, not a lot of, uh, of business going on there. So we didn't have a lot of money. So I definitely worked, but I was the manager of materials flow, which basically meant that uh, I would have to create a plan for how many units they wanted to produce and all the parts that I needed to order them. And then the hardest part of it was talking to all the vendors and telling them why I couldn't pay their bills. Huh. <laughs> things, things are coming together nicely for me. But that's supply, chain. Remember, that's supply chain, right? So, well, I remember, no, I mean, like, it's funny you say that because I remember one of the first, when we, when we first started working together at echo, one of the first, you know, uh, I, I got into a situation, you know, relatively early on with, 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 uh, with some shipments and I had to give bad news to the customer. And I came to you and I was like, no, here's what's going on. And, and I, I vividly remember you being like, 
you need to have that conversation with them. You need to have that difficult conversation with them. And I would imagine some of that came from you learning early on, like the value of being able to have difficult conversations with people, get through it, but still maintain the relationship. Is that, am I kind of putting too much into that or no? Yeah, I don't know if telling a bunch of people that I had no relationship that I couldn't pay their bills, but but maybe I did because I ordered them. I mean, I was maybe, but it, but absolutely. I mean, it's different because you were the customer and they were the vendor. And then this situation, I was the vendor and they were the customer. Yeah, still, I was I mean, still a 14-year-old or 15-year-old kid. So, um, <laughs> But um, I think there's no question that part of the reason you have relationships is because things in our industry go wrong frequently. Yeah. And when you have that relationship, you can manage that situation, whatever it might be, much better. And that's important, regardless yeah. of whether it's on the carrier side or the customer side. And you build that I mean, relationship through engaging, not through running away, through engaging, talking about it, taking their anger, them being allowed to blow their top and know that you are still standing there and working with them. And it's okay because they're justified to be pissed. Totally. That's an interesting job for a 15-year-old to have. Your first introduction is supply chain probably there too, right? Uh, yeah, which, uh, which, I kind of forget that sometimes, but yeah. I, 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 think, uh, I think it's interesting when I look back on my life when I was in, in, in high school, like I worked, which I think you know, I worked for a small school supply distribution company and I was doing LTL. I never had any idea that I would be involved in this industry broadly. And I hate LTL now, so you know, it's funny. It's funny that that was my introduction because LTL seemed like it made so much sense back then. Um, and now it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Did you, uh, when you were a kid, did you ever have that, like, I've been asking people the same thing and I just finished watching, um, I just finished watching Last Dance and you grew up in Chicago. Did you ever have that Michael Jordan, like, didn't make the varsity basketball team moment when you were, is there something like that? Not necessarily related to sports, but did you have something that in your kind of like formative years where, you know, there was a major disappointment that kind of stuck with you or stays with you? Um, I, uh, I think, you know, athlete, athletics for me is a, is a, once again, a big focus because I love it. The value of team sports in terms of creating you as a person and to be able to negotiate issues and to work with people and build relationships is huge. I would encourage anybody to do it. That being said, my athletic skill set. Um, and my physical skill set, and I would say also my athletic work ethic was not um, uh, in the same realm as the people that I was playing with. I was fortunate to be able to play on a team that was national and world champions, incredible experience with incredible athletes, powerful personalities. So I was always hard on myself like a lot of us. And I would, you know, if I underperformed, which from my expectations, which was frequent, I would, you know, beat myself up. And so I think that was definitely a challenge for me, whereas school came really easy. Business pretty early on came really easy. Athletics, um, because I just didn't have the tool set, um, was more of a challenge. And that's where I uh, uh, beat myself up a fair amount. When you were growing up, was there anybody you really looked up to? Like, was there any anybody you sort of said, I want to grow up to be like Mike? 
Well, Mike, Michael yeah. Jordan. So it's interesting you bring up Mike because I had season <laughs> tickets from the year he got injured, his second season to the Bulls. So my kids grew up to some degree in in Chicago. I'm I'm totally changing your question, but that's in, uh, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, my kids grew up going to the Bulls games, and I still get crap for. Uh, we had two tickets, and I had two sons, and I still get crap for uh, making my what what. It probably he was probably five, but they keep pushing it up in the story to when he was 13 that I'd make him sit on my lap so we could get him in free. In those days, if you carried a kid in, you could get him free and they could sit on your lap. So, but, uh, you know, my father certainly was a motivating force in terms of how he dealt with people, particularly in periods of joy and despair. He was amazingly skilled at giving people comfort and at taking situations that still make me and so many people uncomfortable and just with his big smile and his warmth being able to make the situation better. So that, and for me, does not come so easy. Um, so that is something that I definitely, you know, I aspire to, and Ryan, you probably know this from working with me, I'm very focused on what needs to be done next or what we are doing wrong. I had this conversation with somebody else recently um, uh, about your approach to management there's people that are very focused on the successes and I'm very focused on moving forward and where we're going next. And with people who don't know me, that can sometimes come across as harsh or critical and not enough pat on the back. So For people who do know you, it can come off as yes. harsh and critical too. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. You know, when, when you, so, you know, when you were a kid, I kind of hear like you, you, you cared a lot about athletics, but you weren't always that motivated in athletics school was easy for you. What, like, I did, you know, what, what was motivating for you when you were a kid to be, you know, to, to kind of like be a high performer in the classroom to be, you know, to, to be able, because like, even if it's easy for you to get into Penn, right. To be able to, to be able to have the academic career that you had is hard. <laughs> so what motivated you, what motivated you when you were a kid to kind of reach those levels of success even before you got into your professional life? Yeah, the childhood conversation is interesting for me. Um, uh, that, that, that goes deeper in a lot of re uh, reasons, but um, I, I wouldn't say I wasn't motivated in athletics. I just wasn't disciplined as an athlete, disciplined mm -hmm. in terms of preparation. Um, anytime, look, every year that we got older growing up, you know, your kid could be a rock star in T-ball and then he has to be on the big field and then he makes it to high school and for sports or academics or anything. As you get older, people start to focus on certain things. So the talent and the skill sets gets better and better so that at a certain point mm -hmm. you're competing against people that are have all mostly your caliber of skill set, whether that's academically, athletically, whatever. And the difference is the work ethic and the preparation. And I would say I wasn't disciplined as an athlete in terms of knowing how to take care of myself and prepare myself physically mm -hmm. to be able to perform at my top. Now I am, because if I want to continue to do the things I love to do, which is mountain bike riding and uh, skate skiing now and still playing ultimate, playing basketball, I if I don't prepare, I'm going to get hurt and then I'm out for right. six weeks. So that's, I've learned to become a disciplined athlete so I can continue to do the things I love to do. I would say I was not that disciplined as a kid. So academically, mm -hmm. to the extent that I recall, 
it came fairly easy to me. And I chose my university because I had a good time on my road trip when I was in Philly that night. And I, I obviously got good enough grades and good enough scores that I was able to get at it. That may sound um, arrogant, but I, I, I've been blessed with certain talents. Everybody's blessed with something. Those people that are lucky are the lucky enough ones that can find to focus their life on things that they enjoy. Mm -hmm. They happen to be mm -hmm. good at. Uh, Ryan, totally. we talked about this before. Um, but I didn't necessarily maximize it because of the lack of discipline. And yeah. I, I know friends that maybe didn't get their lives and their careers off with a bang like I did at the age of 22, but have gone much further because of that level of discipline. And I, and I would say mm -hmm. that's been a lot of my limitation every step of the way is this is the discipline. Um, I, I have tended as a kid uh, in my choices personally and in professionally, I fly by the seat of my pants and I'm a visionary and creative. Um, and uh, sometimes it gets challenging for those around me to follow along. Um, yeah. Especially it's like dancing with me. It's like I'm not going to follow dance lessons or be told what to do. I'm going to kind of be random. I got, I'm a good dancer, but it's really tough on the partner. So, yeah, totally. You and Elaine from Seinfeld, great dancers. So, you know, I would say. <laughs> Uh, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, into your point about, uh, people finding the thing that they're best at, it's also, you know, pretty rare that people find something that they're really good at and that they also enjoy, you know, that was some struggle for me for a long time. I know in my professional life is like, there were things that I was really, really good at. So I thought I needed to do them professionally and they just made me unhappy and they made me miserable. And, and I also tend to focus on, you know, and I tend to see myself as, as really, average in most things. And so I look at all the things that I'm not so great at, like, you know, we could, we could spend the whole lifetime talking about the things that I'm terrible at, you know? Um, but then you, you, to your point, you tend to like, right. You get praise for the things that you're good at and, and people focus you there. Uh, even if you can't focus yourself there, um, you know, over time. So like, okay. So, so moving kind of like, so you go, you go to Wharton, you go to, uh, you go, you, 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 uh, or excuse me, you go to Penn. Yeah, I did not go to Wharton. I went to a class in Wharton. You uh, you graduate, you come back to Chicago. Yeah. And you start getting into, so you meet a consultant. This is where we start to get into the American backhaulers part of the story, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I worked at Scornavaco's Pizza when I first got back in college. And I was, uh, I almost took, oh, and I sold laser arts. Uh, in Gary, Indiana, to offices walking the streets for one day and uh, quit that job. Uh, was it less dangerous then or more dangerous then? I don't know. It was just miserable. The idea of I, I don't think I was ever smart enough to be scared in different neighborhoods, but, um, but it was miserable. Uh, I took a job with an air freight company that's whole business strategy was that they were minority owned from, some, from a woman who really had nothing to do with the business. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't uh, last long there. But then I met a consultant who um, had developed a transportation consulting firm who was focused on helping private fleets get authority um, for to haul other people's freight right out of the regulation. So this is 1982, 1983. The regulation right. was in 1980. So this was Jim Stone. Uh, part of the Stone Container family had a, a consulting firm called Stone Management Group. And he's actually the person who hired me um, to uh, work. And his object was for me to get backhaul freight for his clients that he'd helped to get authority. 
And I did that. He, he placed me in uh, with Paul Loeb to do that, who had just started this company, American Backhaulers, and was doing it half time on the side in his dad's office, who was a, uh, a, a broker for aggregate and sand. He was a Martin Berrietta broker, Herb Loeb, great guy uh, who passed away a few years ago. And I think a lot of people from CH, uh, from American Backhaulers knew him because he always worked in their office. Um, but we worked in his Paul office. Paul returned the favor. Paul, uh, yeah, yeah. So we worked out of his office uh, at 407 South Dearborn. And um, Paul, when I first met him, he was doing that halftime. He was selling, brokering sand, and he was moving, backhauling the sand on Sealy Posturepedic trucks from Florida back to Chicago. And then when I joined him, that's when he went to it in full time. And um, there we go. So one one quick follow was it as cheap to move florida to chicago then as it is now like how yeah so just curious that that's a stunning question so our pricing algorithm then that we first did that paul told me i'm pretty sure was a dollar a mile Hmm. and to some degree, this is everything was a dollar a mile or yeah, yeah. Florida. Okay. He just said, quote a dollar a mile, quote a dollar a mile. Okay. He did. Paul trained me. And look, Paul's one of the greatest guys and one of the best salespeople I have ever met and clearly brilliant financial manager as well. Um, uh, he trained me by telling me a dollar a mile and throwing a yellow pages at me and telling me he didn't throw it at me and telling me to call sand companies. And that's kind of how, you know, and then we figured it out together from there. But um, interestingly enough, if you think about that, 1982 rates that we pay trucking trucks have not gone up that much. I mean, truckers will certainly, any truckers who listen to this will certainly glom onto that. I want to come back to that in a second. You know, part of the reason I'm doing this podcast comes from, you know, my journey and when I left my last business and how I kind of went through this journey of, of, of learning and discovery and, and, and talking to folks about what their journeys were and, and under, I, you know, seeing some of the places where they were similar to mine and helping work through kind of with myself almost as therapy, how they dealt with certain challenges I did. So I'm curious. So with that point, you know, to your point, when you came out of school, you had something you wanted to do. There were economic challenges. You did some other stuff. It was like, for me, that was really frustrating, right? Like the pounding, the pavement, you know, you know, my story, but you know, how I walked around and and I suit and tie walked into law firms, pounded the pavement, handed in my handed folks, my resume. That was just, I mean, I, I, every day I was, it killed me every single day. I mean, the rejection just mounting and mounting. And I, and I had, I had a couple of folks who, who took me in and sort of said, Hey, you can, you can shadow us. You can come with us uh, to, to court, there were some family law attorneys, um, and that that was that buoyed me a bunch before I ended up at Echo. But but I found that just cru- soul crushing. What was that? I mean, h- how did you deal with that phase where you had a plan, right? You said I'm going to go to school. I took this transportation course in economics. Maybe I'll get into our you know regional transit or what have you. And then the whole thing, you know, Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Okay, you get punched in the face, it's not working out. What was that like for you? Was it frustrating? Was it like, did you not give a fuck? Like, how, how did you deal with that? And 
Do you think that's impacted you going forward from there? Yeah, those are those are really good questions. So uh, I, I I don't remember the I looked hard for a job then, and I got a lot of rejection. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember the feeling then um, of what that felt like, but I will say that I've never looked for a job since. Hmm. I've been an entrepreneur for a reason. And one of those reasons is I hate looking for a job and I hate getting judged and I hate rejection. And I have a lot of ideas and I just want to do them. And I'm a startup guy. I'm good at it. That doesn't give me any fear or discomfort. But but I would say um, the other thing that I want that, that I was thinking about as you asked that question is once again, very few people, everybody I think is good at something and probably many things, and they're probably good at something that they will really love. The lucky few are the people who figure out who find that. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, Jews and lots of other ethnicisms, you're like law school or medical school or whatever it is. How do we don't know what the hell we're going to school at, at the this age point, of 18. I still have we're drunk half the time and then we're making a professional decision. So the so, point is, and Ryan, you can talk about this as soon as I shut up and talk about your experience with why you went to law school, right? Yeah. The I point still, yeah. is when you do search, get to know yourself and be open to opportunities. A lot of this finding where you can really succeed and be happy is pure luck. And so if you're not open. Trial and error. You won't, yeah. you, won't you won't. Well, you won't you'll miss the opportunity that gets presented in front of your face for what it's worth i mean i still have no idea i'm 37 years old i still have if you're not in sales if you're not a lawyer a doctor an accountant i guess an engineer now i know engineers i still have no fucking idea what people do for a living like i have no i like i don't know I, I still don't know it's a good i mean that's a, i think so i think that's a good point and to your point about about being open to things I have a philosophy. I have a theory on Amazon. You know, particularly Jeff Bezos gets a lot of credit for being this visionary. Like Jeff Bezos didn't think of, like Jeff Bezos didn't design AWS when he was thinking about Amazon, but he hired smart people who were problem solvers. And when they solved a problem in a creative way and came to him and said, "Hey, there might be an opportunity here," he said. That sounds interesting. Let me learn more. You know, instead of saying, fuck you, stay in your lane, right? Do what I'm telling you to do. That's, you know, they, right? He was he was open kind of to your point, um, uh, which I think was interesting. Do you, you said you hate rejection, but I find that interesting in my experience with you because you're one of the better salespeople that I've ever known. Um, you, you seem to, you know, I remember one time you said to me, there are, you know, there are, there are people, there are basically three types of people in sales. There's people who like wake up every day and really are excited to do sales and like love it. And it's in their blood. You know, that's like Patrick Sheldon is a guy who comes to mind or Costa uh, Anaziris is a guy who come to mind that you and I both know. And I'm, I'm going to have post Costa on this podcast at some point. I talked to him the other day about it. Yeah, he'd be great. Um, I mean, he's like the best natural salesperson I think I've ever known. Uh, you know, then there's the middle type of person who, you know, who, who wakes up every day and is like, all right, well, I got to get through it, but I'm not miserable. And then there's the people who are miserable. My experience with you is you're more the first kind of person than any of the other kinds. Like you actually enjoy sales. You enjoy the hunt. You enjoy the, 
But am I wrong about that? Am I getting that wrong? Yeah, if that's I, true, how do you marry those two things together? I don't think that's true. I mean, Paul was, like I said, one of the best salespeople that I ever met. I, I think salespeople who are really good do let rejection just float off their shoulder and they don't care. And I don't think I'm like that. I think I really enjoy people and I enjoy the conversation. And I'm an ops guy. I'm a problem solver. So I like to understand what their problems are if they will engage with me and help mm-hmm. figure out if we, I legitimately believe I can find them a solution. If I, if there's not a fit there and we don't connect, um, I don't push it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think good salesmen have to go, 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 because it's hard to get those doors to open. Let's face it. When I first started selling American backhaulers, there weren't very many people calling, offering, you know, freight brokerage, and we were quoting a buck a mile, which was cheap then, right? Because it grew out of deregulation. So, <laughs> so I, I built my my base was the metals industry. I found my mm-hmm. way from sand to uh, recycled batteries to lead recycling to 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 the metals industry, right? And metals industry was a brokerage industry. It was a it was a low value commodity that the freight spend was a big component of the total cost of goods. And so I built my thing in the metals industry was good at what I did and it kind of spread. So I don't know that I did that much sales and, and I was in charge operationally at American Backhaulers at the age of 23 or 24 or something. I don't know, something ridiculous. So um, I think I genuinely enjoy having a conversation with people and collaborating and coming up with creative solutions. And if there's not that connection, you know, I, I just don't push it. So. All right, so let's talk backhaulers for a few minutes. I mean, it's like, I mean, what else is there to talk about in freight? But so backhaulers, you and so you meet Paul. You're kind of working in this office. At, how long had so how long had Paul been doing this part time and then training you to do it? Uh, backhaulers was organized as a company in '82, and I came in '83. So I think about six months. It really, really grew right out of deregulation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he called it American back haulers and he was smart enough to get the number one, 800 haulers. Um, and that made a big difference then. Um, and, uh, so yeah, he went into it full time when I joined, uh, so the two of you in, uh, in Herb's office. Yeah. So the two of you are going into it full time. Talk a little bit about, you know, like, like talk a little bit about the early years, what it was like. Uh, you know, kind of starting that business and building it up and and really seeing it kind of explode. And how did it explode? And, and like, what was the kind of the secret sauce? Yeah, I mean, trucking then was a pretty staid industry. Uh, the asset uh, of the authority, right? And before deregulation, a carrier had to have authority to haul from any one state to any other state. So carriers would build up these licenses of authority, which they placed the value of millions of dollars on their books. So after deregulation, there was a huge period of, of carrier bankruptcies because their assets were gone and suddenly their ability to get debt was gone. And, um, and it was a completely different game. And I would say we were two really smart young people in an industry that was really staid. Um, and we worked collaboratively together, designing operational processes. I mean, our first load board was a big rack that we moved the load over from ordered to booked to checked in to picked up to delivered. It had columns. It was a steel rack, and that is how kind of how we replicated our first technology load board. And step by step, we just figured out organizational ways that made a big difference. Some of those were committing on the load. 
right? Taking the load and committing on it. Nobody was doing that then. They would say, let me see if I can find a truck. We started quoting a rate, sticking to that rate, committing on the freight and finding some way to move it and the willingness to take losses if we quoted wrong and quickly learning that how to quote right because you could only, we weren't funded by some private equity company who would let you burn cash like till your face turned blue. So if you quoted wrong, A, you worked your tail off all day to move one stupid load and B, then you still lost money. So that's how you oh, learn to quote right. Um, so I think we developed, um, you know, and on the sales side and on the financial side, Paul really led it. On the operational side, I, I started to focus on the div division into carrier and customer. And on a phone system, uh, I worked with a phone consultant to identify and separate calls from, you know, if you're on a load, if you're looking for a load, or if you are look, you know, looking to move a load, right? Drivers, carriers, customers. And, and so some of those operational things we set up, we definitely created the split model then just out of our, I assume we created, maybe somebody else had it before. And then pretty quickly, I realized the potential of technology in this industry, that it was a big matching game, right? That's what it was. It was a big matching game. As we started to get more volume, you couldn't manage this in your head. And so understanding where available loads were available truck store and matching them together. So I understood the nature technology could play, even though I, I wasn't, you know, I took a couple Pascal courses or something in college. And so I started to try to- Literally no one's going to know what that is. I have no idea what that is. No right. one's going to know what a Pascal Fortran, right? Is. There's another one, right? Um, no idea what no idea what that is either. I just, I'm a history major. What do I know about anything? But, uh, but that's what I started to focus on, on building technology. And, 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 and that was really the first forays of technology for American backhaulers. And we can talk more about that in a little bit, if you want. You, you were kids. Did you think about like, what if, Amer like, what if, it, what if what we're doing fails or what if it doesn't work? Did that, I mean, well, were there things you did that didn't work? Um, oh Yeah. But the beauty of an entrepreneurial business, that is the beauty. You just do stuff. If it works, you do more. If it doesn't, you stop and you do something different. Did you, you think about, okay. Um, first of all, I got to acknowledge that going in, it was a job for me. I was getting paid a lot of money, like $15,000 a year, I think was my first was my first salary at American Backhaulers. And um, pretty soon, um, uh, I, we eventually separated ways from the consulting firm pretty quickly. And I got commission and started to make money, right? I think, I don't remember what our original commission structure, but it was probably a third because the original financial model that Paul had was a third, a third, a third, right? Uh, a third for commission, a third for administrative costs, and a third per, for profit uh, of the gross margin, right? Of GP. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, and that still holds pretty true until it was determined that what you want to do is not make a third, you want to lose a third, which is the new financial model of brokerage, right? Because it's all about growth. But um, um, what, were, what were we talking about? <laughs> so we were talking about like, you know, did you, you know, what would it have been? Did uh, you think about failure? Like you jumped into it, it was a job. So like you didn't, you didn't think about a failure then. If you, right. you didn't oh, care. Oh, I, I had no risk, right, initially. Um, and it was moving so fast. I just think we were moving. Paul did the initial investment, but that was a very limited investment from him too that he had, um, I think, made trading options. 
He had made some money trading options, invested that in initial cash flow, right? The, 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 really, the barriers to entry for brokerage were tiny, right? Phone and computer, and you didn't even need a computer then. It was a phone. There's no authority. The authority stuff was easy. The, bond, the surety bond was you know, next to nothing. So then it's cash flow. It's because we, that's the other thing I think we really realized. Don't screw your carriers. Pay them immediately. Pay them steady. Build credit. When you know that, Ryan, when we uh, started, you know, when I started Optimal Freight and you were on board, I started off paying the carriers in one day and it wasn't mm-hmm. for early, early pay. And I gradually pushed that down to about 20, right? Gradually, yeah. because I needed that credit rating to even be able to get carriers to haul a load for me. So um, I think we understood really quick, you take care of your carriers in every way, shape or form, including we were, and now I'm digressing a little, but we were the number two or number three client for a lot of carriers pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were the number one, that was a problem, right? If a broker is the carrier's number one client, and it probably is for a lot now, that was a problem. You, they wanted to have a business that we were helping fill their lanes, balance mm-hmm. their networks, but we could be their number two, their number three. They'd get into financial trouble because their customers are paying in 45 days or slow down or whatever. They'd come to us and we we upfront them the money. Right. Mm-hmm. Because um, that that matters and that word gets, you know, I don't know if it's still true. I, I think it is. If you screw over your carriers and you get a reputation, I, that word certainly got around before. I think it probably still does. I mean, it absolutely does. For I mean, you know, for anybody who follows, you know, on social media, any of these carrier groups, I mean, I follow them constantly. I'm like, a voyeur almost like looking in on these driver groups and talking about brokers and, and certainly like there's a, there's a daytime television aspect to it, but it's enjoyable for me personally. Now that I'm not a, now that I'm not a freight broker. Right. And I don't, I don't, you know, I don't get that anxiety about uh, you know, about what it means for the broader industry. Um, What, uh, so, I mean, was there anything major that you tried that, that didn't work out that you look back on it and you're like, ah, man, I, or at the time you really said, this is going to be the thing. And it wasn't, I mean, it sounds like right now your life is all roses. So like, there's gotta be something. In there. Oh, I've got lots of life challenges, but if you're talking about the origins of backhaulers, we had the flexibility to try stuff. And if it didn't work, just do something different. That flexibility creates tremendous opportunity to really try something brilliant. Right? How did you cultivate that across the organization then? As you started to scale, how did you cultivate the opportunities for folks to say, hey, it's cool. Like I, I say all the time, I say this all the time. It's okay to do the wrong thing. Just do something. Bias towards action. It's okay. If you know that it's going to be wrong, don't fucking do it. But if you're not sure, try it. See what happens. What's the worst thing that happens? The worst thing yeah. that happens, nobody's going to die. Like you're going to fuck up. Who cares? Right. And I think that little speech you just gave is a motivational speech that in our industry, you give to people a lot. Paul's way of saying that to me, the first few days when I sat there scared to death because he really didn't tell me anything. It was just, he said, pick up the phone. A, yeah, yeah. His, his comment to me was pick up the phone. And then who? what's going to happen? You're not going to die, right? So um, I think the structure... Um, which, you know, that commission structure of a third to the rep happened a lot uh, until we split that third into carrier and customer, 15 and 10, 12 and 12, 10 and 15. That was the models 
back then, fairly simplistic um, and allow people to build a customer base, then um, uh, uh, start to pass those customers on when they got too much for support people. And that became the training ground. That happened relatively quickly, pretty naturally, and encouraged people to figure out how to do it and figure out their own ways of managing their teams. So I think we did that as an organization really well and preserved that entrepreneurial spirit. And it's as freight brokerage was as pure a free market industry as you could possibly imagine. You charge what you charge, you pay what you pay, and you make the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I would say on a higher level, particularly when I was starting to design the technology and I was building the processes of American backhaulers and really starting to organize things, I probably did not cultivate leadership um, decision-making and creativity as much as I should have. I, I would be in my own head with my own ideas on the larger things too much and alienated some really smart people as a result. Mm. When I, but remember, I had no mentoring for management. I, I was a 22-year-old kid who suddenly this thing started flying and it was Paul and I working together and and I had a lot of things to learn from. Yeah, I mean, isn't it amazing? I mean, it's amazing. Even when I look back in my career, and I think about um, how much I didn't know when I did certain things. Like, you know, when I started Spartan, how little I knew. You know, and and how like if I went if I went back into that business today, it'd be a totally different business. I mean, not just because the industry is different, but because of what I know about working with people and what I know about my own strengths and weaknesses. Um, and, and I, I think that's, uh, it's amazing when we kind of look back at that and say like, man, how much, how, how much I didn't know at the time and how little sort of how little preparation I had for any of the situations I might find myself in. Right. So I think that's interesting. That's an interesting point. I I mean, as for those who have kids and who are kids who are gotten into high school, what they tell you is dad, I just want to make my own mistakes. Right. Yeah, I guess so. You can't like, you know, you have to touch the hot stove at some point. Yeah, I find it. I still find it incredibly frustrating. I mean, in our business today, you know, as a consultant, it's like you go into a business and you're like, don't do that. And then they do it anyway. And you're like, well, I said not to fucking do it. So like, I don't know what I'm going to tell you. Uh, I can't imagine what that's like having children and like not wanting them to die. Um, I guess when I tell my cats not to do things and they still do it, I still get worked up about <laughs> You're it. You're telling your cats um, not to do things. That raises a bigger question. <laughs> no, I do that a ton. Um, but I'm very weird, as you know, and as people who listen to this podcast probably already know. So you um, so so, you know, Paul goes on to found, you know, Paul goes on to do command. Um, you knew Jeff Silver, who is very famous for founding Coyote, as well as, as the work at Backhaulers. You knew him before Backhaulers, right? So you yeah. met Paul coming into back, like you just got connected to him sort of serendipitously. Yeah. You knew Jeff, right? Yeah, Jeff and I were camp counselors together. That's how we really became connected. We went to the same camp. He was a year younger. We were camp counselors together for 13-year-old boys, and we had a riot, then lived together a couple summers in Evanston and really became best friends. And he was at U of M a year younger than me, and Backhollers was a was great. And I, I encouraged him to join. And uh, so he came on board a year later um, and essentially started like the rest of us, started making cold calls and selling um, and uh, became very successful. Um, but th- when I talk about my not giving and Jeff, 
was very interested in technology for sure. In fact, I talked to you about that steel load board we made, that rack system, mm -hmm. ordered, booked, picked, checked in, picked up, delivered. Well, Jeff built that on an AS, uh, what did he build that on? A, a, one of the early, early, maybe even popular science computers and um, a Commodore 64. Jeff, if you ever listen to this, correct me. I think he built it in a Commodore 64. He built an X moving across the board from order to book to checked in to pick up delivered. So, but I really built the initial technologies at American Backhaulers. And to, to be uh, honest about it, I went to a TBCA conference, um, which was the what old Transportation yeah, Brokerage Conference of America. It was before the TIA. And I was knew what I wanted the technology to do. I looked around, found uh, somebody who had built a proprietary technology and was now selling it. This software guy uh, uh, had built it for a company in Oregon and it approximated an idea of what I wanted. And I bought it for him for a flat amount with unlimited modifications and went to town and really designed it. Um, Jeff was focused on moving and slinging freight like everybody else. And I would say um, I did not, you know, one of my questions was to not um, realize his interest and his talent and bring him into that process. And I held that more close to the best uh, sooner. And I think that built some, uh, some conflict over time. Um, hmm. But when I tell that story, Jeff is one of the people that comes to mind uh, of that. But we were super, super close friends. I, you know, I knew his first wife. I knew his, uh, I, I knew his kids, Andrew and Matt, when they were born. Um, and uh, yeah. When you look back at kind of like the early days of backhaulers, it sounds like it was a lot of fun. It was just like kind of like almost like, I mean, the way you've kind of described this, you know, right now is, you know, like I kind of almost picture it as like if this was a movie montage, you know, there's a, you know, this, this is like, you know, there's like a music and it's like some sort of rock music and everybody's like having fun. And, and like all of a sudden, you know, it shows there's like one desk and then there's 20 desks and then there's 50 desks. You know, is that kind of, is that, is that, is that true? I mean, like when was the kind of maybe the first, when was maybe the first time you kind of looked your head up and said, we have something here. And maybe when was the first time you looked your head up and said, like, I, you know, man, this is, this is different than I want it to be, or this is, you know, maybe, uh, like maybe where's that first friction point, if you will. Yeah. So remember I'm a 21 year old kid. And this is my first job, essentially, outside of Asthma Chemicals. And, well, hypothetically, and my, and my, and my uh, yeah. busboying at, at uh, uh, Cafe Bernard. But I just thought this was how it was. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say our trajectory at American Backhaulers is not that different from a lot of the brokers who have really grown since. Because partly because we created the model, but it's a cash cow. It's a it's been a ridiculous business for forty years. Once again, until we turned it into a business that can lose money, um, that you just add people, you throw incentives, and and you help people build teams under them, and they teach the people, and it's a natural model for growth. And you're just always hiring. Um, one of Jeff's early innovations, I think, that was an innovation that I had nothing to do with, was a a very organized, structured training program and hiring 30 people at a time. 
right? Before I left Backhaulers, he had just started taking control of that as his initiative. And that was a brilliant innovation that really started to escalate moving to that. Because the, the challenge is not growing because you have more business, right? You're a rep and you have a lot of business and you need help. So you hire somebody and they get on and then they they get, right? They call they call the deliveries that they do, you know, warm leads by calling the deliveries and they start to build their own business. And it, it just leads to this natural growth thing and everybody's making money. And let's face it, those, those years at Backhaulers, a lot of people were making a lot of money. And that was true at broke, unless these companies were preventing it by their structure, there was a lot of people who could make a lot of money in this business. Um, and, and Backhaulers was pretty liberal with the commission structure because there was plenty of money to go around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say the, the friction started to come from twofold. One, you said, when was the moment you said, wow, we really got something. I just thought this was the way it was. Mm-hmm. I didn't know mm-hmm. this was special. The you other, didn't know the counterfactual. Yeah. I, the other question was at the exact same time, I was going through an amazing period with ultimate Frisbee with a team called Windy City, which was in a lot of ways, equally amazing. Uh, you know, young kids growing up, uh, building a national championship in a sport that was really a pioneering sport, right? And the energy there. So I have these two things going on at the same time. And then 1988, I have my first son. So life was full. The 80s were incredible for me. And that maybe made it taking certain things for granted. Um, I started getting very interested in environmental issues, environmental activism, recycling. Most of my clients were involved in recycling. Um, and I started thinking about doing something in that regard. And there started to be some friction between Paul and I really around, I hated letting people down. I hate, that was my pain point. I hated letting customers down. Um, and so, whereas Paul would be like, eh, it didn't work. Let's let this one go. We'll, we'll find another one. So Paul's attitude was really, let's keep selling more because some doors are going to close, some doors are going to open it. And I just hated letting people down. So I would freak out if we blew a load to Mm -hmm. a degree that was not appropriate, right? Because I was still had grown up as a kid and I'm in charge of the business and it's now 50 people. And, you know, um, uh, um, and so this philosophy around it's just growth. Let's just get more customers. If we lose one, we'll get another versus we have a responsibility to take care of was a point of friction. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, Paul's was probably right. And there just, there, there came a point at which Paul wanted to put Jeff in charge. Uh, I ran the company for the first 10 years. Uh, and, um, there's deeper stuff to it, but at the end of the day, I took my ball and I went home and I sold out to, to Paul after 10 years, which was obviously a, a, a major error financially, right? Yeah. Oh, I, I forgot to say that early on when I was developing the technology, I was an employee at first, but within the first two years, uh, I bought in to 25% of the business. So I was a part owner and Paul never let anybody else buy in after that, after I sold back then. So what, um, you know what you said and I forget exactly how you worded it, but like, yeah, I mean, you, you, you more or less said I took some things for granted. Like, 
what did you mean by that? Like, what would you take for granted and, and kind of how is that, how has that impacted you going forward in terms of how you think about, you know, how you've thought, how you've thought about the rest of your career after that, which we haven't even gotten to and it's still incredible. Like, there's still great things. In there. Yeah. Uh, you know, once again, there was a lot going on in my life and I just was flying by the seat of my pants, doing what I do, doing my mm-hmm. skill set and my talent. And I was blessed to have met Paul, blessed to have found this opportunity, um, blessed that I was given the freedom to let it go, my creativity go, and it was working, right? Uh, Backhollers, there's no question, certainly Backhollers is not successful if it weren't for Paul. Backhollers also doesn't get if it wasn't, wasn't for me, no question about it. And Jeff then, after I left, took it to another level and took the technology to another level after I left. Um, but so I had a big impact. But that I don't did not realize how unique of an opportunity that was. So I took that mm-hmm. for granted because I had, that was my first job. Um, and I just honestly figured uh, this is how it is. I'll just do it again with something in the environmental industry. Mm. So, That's interesting because yeah. I think when I look at my again, you know, kind of this is this is this podcast is selfish. And I mean, I certainly hope that it has some impact on other people. But it's a, it's a learning journey for me as well. When I look back at my journey, I think similarly. I think, you know, there were, I certainly had opportunities with you. I had opportunities after that, that I didn't understand how unique they really were. And, but I would say where I sit today, I'm not as far along on my journey as you are, obviously, but as I sit here today, I feel like it was really lucky that like, like I'm like, I'm lucky actually that I didn't realize how unique they were. And, 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 and there are certainly financial differences in, in sort of that for you as like backhauler specifically as compared to, you know, other things, but as compared to my journey, but, but I actually think that if I had realized how unique some of the opportunities I have had were with you, with Spartan, with Freight AI, um, with starting, you know, doing my own thing and, and having it fail, um, I wouldn't have the breadth of experience. I wouldn't have the breadth of the network that I have um, to really be, like feel as fulfilled and happy as I do today in my career and in my journey. It sounds like you feel differently. Like y- you not realizing how unique of a, of a situation that was um, had implications. Do you feel like, do you feel that, is that because you feel like you haven't replicated what you guys had at Backhaulers, or is there something else tied up into that? Yeah, so th- those are all really good questions and comments. And and I think the other side of the coin, th- there's no way to, I didn't realize it for a few years because I didn't want to, but there was no way to, to not looking back realize that that was a mistake to sell prematurely, right? And Paul did not want me to leave um, and, and told me so. Um, um, but I'm a restless mind mm-hmm. and, and, yeah, and, and you are too, Ryan, very much so. And that's why I'm an entrepreneur and I like to start things. My father was an entrepreneur, right? My father was a cantor, which meant he was actually the one in his synagogue in, in, uh, uh, that was visiting the sick and visiting, going to hospitals and had choirs and doing weddings. And he was always there emotionally for everybody. He was playing the role of a rabbi. He was getting paid next to nothing and he wasn't in charge 
So he went and became a rabbi primarily so he could build his own congregation. And he, he was an entrepreneur and he did everything. He was a, a calligrapher and he designed the uh, art and he built the marketing and he helped do the real estate and he did. And so I, you, you talked about this before, some people really know what they want to do. My brother knew he wanted to play music by the age of 10. And that's what he mm -hmm. did. And then eventually he dropped out of school. My brother Hillel, he dropped out of school um, it's after his freshman year at the University of Iowa to start playing in the bars there. You know, uh, played in music for the next 10 or 15 years, then went back to school, um, got his undergraduate degree, got his law degree, and now he's an IP attorney representing musicians and he's still in the music world. That's his life. I, mm -hmm. for, for me, and I think for you, life is more of a smorgasbord. So being an entrepreneur allows us to dabble a little bit in everything, but sometimes you need to be disciplined and stay put to reach your uh, the best place. So the next question you asked me, you know, do I feel like I haven't gotten to that level since? Or is I, that why you've, is that why? I, I would say that Jeff, one of the reasons he, Coyote was success, such a success is when C8, when Backhollers first sold to CH, Paul had a exit after that he was planned on, right? And Jeff was not an owner and wanted to be in charge of all the brokerage of CH. And he did not really get that opportunity. Whatever happened there, he didn't really get the opportunity. Look, CH, the technology that Jeff had transitioned my technology to what he built was Express, which I still think may be the best TMS ever built. And those who worked on it probably will agree. Um, and, and CH is still running on it, right? Uh, whatever it's called is, is still built on Express. Mm -hmm. And that's why they bought it. Um, but he wanted to be in charge. He got dissed by it. And he had a chip on his shoulder and that no question about it motivated him. You know, I'm sure hopefully one day you'll have him on this podcast. Um, but so for me, I think absolutely. Um, I did not get the credit that Paul and Jeff got in terms of pioneers and nor do I probably deserve it because, you know, they did American backhaulers. They did command and coyote. Now Jeff is on to uh, something else. Um, and I will say that, that, it gives me great pleasure to know that I helped get you going and to see how uh, creative and how much of a cont contributor and how much a part of you are of this industry. Same thing was true for Paul. We now are on the spinoffs of the spinoffs of the spinoffs from American Backhaulers and people's totally. kids, right? And that is a wonderful thing. Whereas you need to protect some uh, proprietary stuff and uh, IP intellectual property and stuff and non-competes. We also love to see the spread and the foster and people really being able to flourish and succeed. So I think for a while I struggled with the, what I lost. And uh, I don't think in terms of the brokerage model that I have had the success of either one of those guys, but I think uh, Freight Friend gives me the opportunity to really deliver my under operational understanding and my mantra of how certainly brokerage can create value and how shippers and carriers should work together to the industry. And, and I see that that is ultimately a legacy that I can leave. And I think over time, I've made a fair amount of uh, solid impact on a, on a lot of people. Um, yeah, you've definitely made a solid impact on me, for sure, as I said on the lead in. Um, and not that, I, I mean, I'm just one person and I'm not even really that important, but, um, but, but I think you're, you know, you're right. It, it's, it's interesting. I had Ted Alling on here, um, of access America, 
uh, who who sold, you know famously it, the the Chattanooga the the backhaulers of Chattanooga is kind of the way that I kind of described it, right? I mean, and 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 the way that I've kind of come to understand the universe of brokerage, you know, broadly, I've said that um, Chicago's on its third wave of brokerage, right? There was backhaulers, then all of these spinoffs of the spinoffs, Command and Coyote were sort of like the big the big dogs, and well, now you a- have a- AFN. You yeah, know, exactly. Redwood came out of there, right? And now you have all of the spinoffs from those shops, yeah. right? Like, you know, Molo certainly and, and, you know, Andrew's connection there, but but even others. Like, so now you have this third iteration. I mean, I would say even, you know, my brokerages were third iteration spinoff or third wave, if you will. Chattanooga's on their second wave. I mean, if you look at Chattanooga, you know, you had access. They come in, Coyote buys them. You still, you know, Coyote sticks around. But then you have all of these other spinoffs like Steam and 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 others, even if they're not direct descendants, right? But there's just now there's this community of brokers where you can't walk outside in Chattanooga without you know falling over a broker, um, which so, so I certainly think that's something to to uh, to hang the hat on. So you stayed out of brokerage for a while. You stayed out of transportation for a while. You did greener cleaners. You did some other. You did some um, some environmental stuff. Let's talk about maybe getting back into the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why did you do that? And, and kind of like what, did, how did you think differently maybe about what your journey would be like the second time? Um, so I built a few businesses. Greener Cleaner was my environmental effort, a tough business. I started a primary care group of physicians um, that really tried to dabble in uh, managed care in the 90s, um, you know, uh, got them going and off the ground. Um, and then, um, the greener cleaner was a dry cleaning business that was a pioneered in environmental technology in the U S. So that was my environmental event. We were a public private partnership with some really smart people, but it's a tough business. So I stuck around trying to make that a success for longer than I probably should have, because I don't really accept failure very well uh, and made it successful, but it's a modicum of financial success that you're going to get with the dry cleaning business. Um, Though there are, some people who've made a lot of money, and it's just a tough business for what the workers have to do. It's tough, tough business. Um, so it was an interesting choice. I'm sure Paul and Jeff still laugh about that. Um, but um, uh, I actually, to be honest with you, uh, it was 2000. Uh, it was early 2000s, and I, my kids were going to college, and I needed to make money again. You know, I had made a half a million dollars in the mid 80s. Um, and, uh, so I went back to the industry I knew I could make money at. Um, I was fortunate that, uh, one of the key people that I had helped, uh, that I had hired and taught the industry to, and was absolutely a key person in the industry, John Thompson, um, had started a company called American Transport Group. And he had studied with a partner, Harold Gross. Harold Gross and I went to grade school together. Harold Gross, uh, had been outside the industry, had been, I think, in law school. Um, and he actually came in and I trained him, handed him all my customers when I left. And he was grateful for that. Um, and John Thompson was the head of carrier sales at American Backhaulers and was as critical to backhauler success as any one of us. You know, Paul, Jeff, me, John Thompson's name should be right up there. Very low key guy. He, he doesn't get a lot of press, so he built ATG. I wish him all the best. So they gave me an opportunity to get back in the industry in 2000, nearly 2000s. And that's how I kind of how I got back in. And interestingly enough, so this is an interesting story. 
you know, I came in, I was, I don't know, I was 40, right? I was 40. What year were you born? And, and what year was this? Uh, yeah, this was Why are you looking at me, man? I, I don't know. You should know how old you are. And all, everybody else is in their 20s. Right. And sure. I'm on the floor hustling freight and I'm trying to they gave me the flexibility to do any side I wanted. And so the first thing I did is I booked a carrier on a load. Right. It mm -hmm. had been a little while. And that uh, driver drove off the side of a mountain and died. That was the first That's load I booked getting back in the industry. I think I told you that story before. So what do you think? That's interesting. So, you know, how this is another way I, I didn't plan this when I wanted to have you on. And, and there were some, there's certainly there's like parallels I'm drawing today that I've never sort of drawn before in our relationship. When I joined echo, I was 26, 25 or 26 came out of law school, failed to fail path to echo. I'm on the floor with a bunch of 22 year olds, 21 year olds, 23 year old kids who are, you know, you know, they're not that much younger than me. But but still, like, I was like, it, like you, you know, a, a trained monkey could do most of this work, right? Like, and that's where I, that's where my interest in technology started. I mean, I remember when we first started, or when I first started at Echo, you know, Brad Keywell or 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 or, or whatever the other guy's name was, Eric Lefkowski. came in. Yeah, it was Brad or Eric. One of them comes into the training room is like, we're we're built on technology, and I'm like, you are because there's thirty people in this room with me who are just don't know anything. And, and all we're trying to figure out, all you're trying to figure out is how to get them to make more phone calls. And there's 700 kids out there and all they're doing is making phone calls. Like, how is this a technology play? And, and then I, you know, anyway, so I get on the floor and, and I, I had that, I, you know, I felt so defeated because you know, I was, and I was only 26 again, I'm, cause I'm 26 and like all of these kids you know, are just here. I could have done this four years ago. I don't have to be smart. I don't have to be, all I have to do, all I have to know how to do is pick up the phone and dial it. And, 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 and that, that in and of itself, that motivation is, is important and valuable or whatever. You're 40, you're hustling freight on the floor. I don't know. Did, did that feel any different or was that you feeling like maybe I'm just getting my feet wet again or, or how, I don't know how to, you know, especially was... after backhaulers, Robinson, you're probably, you know, you're thinking, man, I really missed out on the boat there, whatever. I mean, how did that feel? It was very challenging. And it's why it didn't last that long. And I would think Harold is justifiably uh, not too happy with me because I didn't stay long and he gave me a, a chance. But um, I'm definitely an entrepreneur. And part of what allows you to be able to do things that you may not want to do is having the vision to where it's going to get you. And I did, at that organization, I really didn't see the path to me being able to be creative. They had already uh, had an IT guy building their tech. They, they had that under control. There really wasn't, other than hustling freight, uh, there really, I didn't see the path to being able to be an entrepreneur and creative. And although the other businesses that I had built may not have been great moneymakers, pioneering an environmental technology on the dry cleaning industry in 1995, we were known around the country and we did some pretty cool stuff. We were handed it to technology and we realized after they trained us that they didn't know what the hell they were doing and there was no technology. So we had to figure it out. And that's what I like to do is I like to start from zero and figure things out. 
And um, you need to at least have the vision to where you're going to go. Mm. So my recommendation to entrepreneurs, a mistake yeah. that I made with Jeff is don't make sure all your employees feel empowered and have try to identify their skill set. You as a manager have an obligation to help that person figure out what they're good at and like to do and position them to find that and, and succeed. And if you don't, they're going to go somewhere else. Um, if all they care about is sales and making money, you're probably not going to hold on to them because they're, they're going to get one good client and somebody's going to pay them $250,000 and hire them away. And, and that too bad for them. But um, I, I think um, um, that was really hard when I was 40 for sure. Um, there was a couple of other issues. And so I, I'm a startup guy. I like to build from the ground up. I like the creative aspect of it. So how did you end? So, so, so ATG, did something happen between there and Echo or how did you get to Echo? Um, let's say essentially, you know, in the middle there, uh, I, I went to business school, right? Uh, mm -hmm. When I first left back colors, I went to business school, got my MBA at UFC, but, but pretty soon thereafter, I ended up at Echo in 2007 and I was hired by Eric and Brad. Echo at that point was an LTL company. Primarily, they were doing some managed truckload freight for a few truckload clients, a few clients that they started out as LTL, but really had no idea how to do truckload brokerage. They had made a couple of efforts and never really succeeded. So I was hired to build the truckload side. And there was two challenges there. One is I'd never really worked for anybody. So there was mm -hmm. a big learning curve there. Um, I sort of did at ATG for a little bit, but, but, uh, ran into a little bit of a wall there. Um, and I had never gotten the skill set of, of coming up because I was in charge by the age of 23 and then was an entrepreneur after that. And the second challenge was there was some weird cultural stuff in the leadership. Um, uh, Arazio Buzo was president. I reported to him. Great guy, very talented manager. Um, but getting the ability and the opportunity to do what I was brought to do took a while and trying to introduce truckload sales to people that are used to selling LTL, there just wasn't, they didn't get, it took, uh, uh, it took so long to introduce to them the fact that it's not zip, zip rate, uh, that it just doesn't work the same. And that quoting a rate doesn't give you guaranteed capacity because there's not a bunch of local drivers there to pick it up. It's a different model. And to the process of building relationships and building a whole carrier team. So it took me a while just to earn the right to do what they brought me to do, which was incredibly frustrating. But once they gave me a chance, I, read, I designed the whole truckload technology. I made them pull the whole accounting department out. Uh, and... and um, oy. I'm forgetting somebody very important's name, which hopefully I'll remember. I brought in a person who had come out of another brokerage to woman to lead uh, the accounting department. And uh, she knew how to do it. And we just pulled it completely out um, so that we could pay the people on time. They weren't paying anybody on time. It was death from the get-go on the truckload side. And um, uh, redesigned the technology, made the split model and uh, pulled a whole truckload side, took the whole sales side apart and built the whole truckload side. And you you know that what that was like. And uh, uh, interesting enough, Groupon, you, probably when you were there, Groupon started on the truckload side of backhaulers when mm -hmm. they first started. Right? Yeah, I remember the kids wearing like fucking pajamas to work every day. And I'm like, who the fuck are these people? Um, 
you know, and they had those like balls that they would sit on or whatever, those yoga balls. I'm like, why are these people here? Because especially because at the time, I think we had to go like business casual, you know. Um, uh, it's interesting. What made you, you know, you said it was really incredibly frustrating and whatever. As I've heard you talk about your journey before there, that sounds like the kind of thing you might have given up on and tried something else. What made you stick this one out? At Echo, you're talking about. Yeah, at Echo, yeah. I didn't. I left after. Well, interestingly enough, I stuck it out. I probably was ready to leave. And then I finally was given the opportunity to do what I wanted to do, which was full entrepreneurial build. Uh, I thought you were going to say that you met me, but okay, uh, yeah, go with this instead. <laughs> go I would I would say, Ryan, that you came in. Um, there was a person on the carrier side that was a really solid early hire, and you were really a solid hire at the customer side. And you were my kind of my right-hand man for my customers, right? And mm -hmm. your being there allowed me to do what I wanted to do, which was to build a business. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I, and hopefully you learned a lot and got the opportunity to flourish, but you started out taking care of customers and everything that that involved and quoting. Um, and that allowed me to build a department. And, and so it was an entrepreneurial opportunity when that opportunity got closed. I left when that opportunity yeah. was like, uh, somebody came in and they decided it was a little power grab. They brought somebody in who, uh, wanted to cut my wings cause I was a big ego. And uh, I said, see ya. And I left. And within six months, that person was gone too. You, you know, uh, you've said a couple times. So like, there's a lot of people who might look at these different things you've been through up like, and we're, you know, there's still even more to your journey, which we're going to talk about that has success and failure. And, 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 and that I'm much more familiar with, um, intimately, but you know, even up to this point, there's, there's people who might look at your journey and say, you know, it's a, it's an amalgamation of success and failure. Like they would look at, they'd look at the backhaulers, they'd look at the end of backhaulers and they'd say, like, I'm hearing you say, Backhaulers was success and it was failure. Like, sure, it didn't end the way that I wanted it to. And I have regrets about that. But there was incredible success in there. And I can't lose sight of that. And, you know, so my first kind of follow question here is, and, and other things too, like with Echo, right? I mean, Echo, Echo's, you know, you, you've had, there, there are some really talented people who have come out of Echo um, there are some really talented people who are still in Echo that wouldn't be there if they weren't for you. You've built some incredible relationships with folks because of the work at Echo. Somebody like Ben Shukart, who I think the world of at Schneider, who I know you're close with as well. Like there are, there are, there are people, you know, people might look at that and if they reflect on their own journey, say, well, that's failure. And people struggle with that, right? They struggle with when there's success and there's failure, they fixate on one over the other, Right. And one of my hypotheses that I'm exploring with this podcast is it's not all success and it's not all failure. It's, it's, a, it's always a blend. Do you, I mean, how do you kind of keep sight on the, or how have you thought about that the success and the failure living in a duality and on a spectrum and not being binary? How do you live with like, you don't look at backhaulers and go, it was a failure because of the way it ended. 
you look at fat callers and say, yeah, there was failure in there. And it, like, I'm not happy with how it ended, but it was still successful in these ways. Yeah. So there's no question that I beat myself up for a while in the 90s thinking about the failure once I realized that I made a mistake. But now I don't feel that way at all. And I think as you get older, you start to, if you can stay healthy when you get older, it's pretty great because you have so much experience and you're smart you're of, um, and you're understanding and you're mature. And I would say for me to describe what you just described is it's the journey. The journey is beautiful. The journey of life, success, failure, meeting people, it's all connected and it's all about growth. And, you know, I'm going to be 60 this year and I'm totally looking forward to what's next. I'm so when totally you looking forward to what I'm building with Freight Friends. So all of those things, and you know it, Ryan, yourself, that each one of those things that you did, you wouldn't be who you were if each one of those things weren't part of them. You wouldn't have the totally. knowledge that you do, and you wouldn't then be able to reflect on what you would do differently. Um, I don't think I am as much of a student as I would like to be. So my learning curve is a little slower than some people. But I think, uh, and I still fly by the seat of my pants more, as everybody, my dev team will tell you. Um, and uh, but everybody gets to know the business really well because nobody's pigeonholed. Um, because I like to teach as part of it. But the journey is the beauty, and um, keeping a positive attitude and being a good person, and and loving and caring for other people, even if your temperament and your anxiety may contribute stuff, as long as you really mean well and you really care, people know that. And you gotta be a good person to those around you and know that it's, it's, not, a, it, it, it's not a zero sum game. Everybody doesn't win and lose all the time. But did you only learn, like did you only, like when you were in the 90s and you had those regrets, the only, is the only way that you got through them by getting older, cause like, that's that's going to take a long time for most people like or did you i mean how did you how did you how have you learned to attack those things with and and not have the regrets in the moment is it just aging it's okay if that's the answer but i'm just curious no i i would say get back on the horse right it's keep moving forward and get back on the horse sometimes that processing you know sadness is okay get in there and figure out what's up don't be fearful of it. Don't live in regret, but sometimes process, right? There's a, there's a fine line between regret and learning. And I would say in the 90s, that regret took over. Mm -hmm. And eventually I learned to process it in the 2000s and move forward. The 80s, but the 80s for me was ridiculous. And it was, life wasn't going to always be like that in so many fronts, right? Uh, the 90s were much more challenging. In 2000s, I started to really be able to utilize what I had learned along the journey and start to figure out next steps and move forward rather than regret and process. So I, I think don't, yeah, try to learn rather than regret and get back on the horse. But how do you, so like, you know, you, you've also said this, you know, this is something else that I wrote down. You also said like, oh man, I hate failure. But how, so how do you marry that with like, you hate rejection, you hate failure. 
Yet well, you do sales and you're willing to be rejected. You you're willing to like you're willing to try stuff and see what works. So like how do you if you hate failure, how do you deal with the fear that you may fail but still be willing to get back on the horse and not just shut it down and take your ball and go home? Well, I, I never said I hate failure. And if you're an yes, entrepreneur, you, you literally said I hate failure. I said you I literally ha- said exactly that. I hate failing people. Oh. I hate no, you said le- I hate failure. I okay, hate fine. letting people down. There's a big difference. We'll check and it. I hate letting customers down very much so. So much so that was sometimes prevented growth. And I hate letting investors down. When I take somebody's money, it is uh, one of the reasons that I've uh, sometimes have issues fundraising is because I take that responsibility really seriously. And, and that faith in me, I hate to let. So I hate to let people down. For me, my money and risk, I'm an entrepreneur. I, that, that's, the, that's my comfort zone. That's where I live. So I, I actually have no fear of personal failure. Where do you I think have that fear came of from? letting people down? Where do you think that came from? Do you, did that cut, like, is that something you were born with? Is it innate? Like, is it something that developed in you over time? Is it some like like where did what's the what is the the center of that? Like, how do we bottle that? You know, I, I think some people are entrepreneurs and some people are not. People who are really anxious about where the money is going to come from and where their paycheck is going to come from may not be set up to be entrepreneurs. I often go into things with really having no idea how I'm going to turn it into a success. And I have confidence that I'll eventually figure it out. The success may be smaller than I might have originally intended, but that's, I stuck around at the cleaner to get it to a level of a success that I could be proud of. Mm -hmm. uh, And I sold it. And it's still every business I ever started, healthcare, cleaning, backhaulers still exists. And people who work there still work there. 40 years and every business I started still exists. That's a level of success. So I, I, you know, I think entrepreneurism is, is something, a level of comfort with risk that's different. So I don't think I have anything, uh, I don't want to use the word better, but I just think that's my comfort zone. My comfort zone is not applying for a job and getting rejected. My comfort zone is starting something from scratch. Uh, not worrying about where the money's going to come from and figuring out how I'm going to make it work. Mm. And I've got enough skills to be able to do that. And Ryan, I, I think, you know, you learned some things from me, but some of uh, you and I are similar in a lot of ways. I think that's one of the ways that we're similar. You like, you like the creative process of building something new, this podcast, this, you know, businesses that you've started. And, and I, you know, while I regretted to see you go at Optimal Freight, you know, and there were reasons that you went. The real reason that you went is you wanted a new challenge. You wanted to be in charge. Yeah, totally. Yep. And now I want to not be in charge of anything. So, you know, maybe I was, you know, but I had to learn that. Well, you're in charge um, of the editing of this podcast. So we'll see. No, I'm not. I have someone else who edits it. <laughs> I, I pay people to do the things that you don't want to do. Um uh, it's interesting, you know, uh, you, you know, I, as, as the observation of, of like not, you know, rejecting applying for jobs is not being in your wheelhouse is, is a good, I mean, I, up until maybe a year and a half ago, I still had every rejection letter I'd ever gotten from 
you know, summer associateships I had applied to from every law firm I had sent my, you know, my, my resume or cover letter to, you know, and, and I, and and I, and I kind of carried that with me for a while. And I had to kind of go through this exercise of getting rid of those. And uh, because I had every single one of them, some of them weren't even open. I just knew it was going to be a rejection letter because they wanted an interview. They would have fucking called me. Right. Um, But, uh, but, but you're, you know, that, that's, that's, that's right. I'd never thought of it that way. So getting into kind of like, so you start optimal, Let's, I mean, we're, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time together, but like, I want to kind of talk about the rest of your journey too, still a little bit. You start optimal. I mean, you know, the first day you're skiing in Aspen. So I'm sure the first day was really great. Cause like I had to sit on the floor. <laughs> I always forget the, about that. I don't. Cause I had to sit on the, I had to show up at 7am cause you told me the furniture would be furniture there. Furniture deliveries. Right. Right at 7am. They don't show up till like three o'clock. It's I don't cold. think I it's was hard. skiing at Aspen though, because I you absolutely there, were. I only went there one time, and I didn't actually like that mountain. But I remember you telling me that you were in Aspen skiing, maybe, and that I needed to, anyway because you weren't going to get to take a vacation for a while. Is what you said. Uh, so anyway, you were what you were right about. So you know, so we start, you know, we start optimal, you know, and 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 I remember, you know, it, it was those those early days were really. Uh, were interesting. I mean, they certainly were different than the way you had described backhaulers. Obviously, I mean, our success wasn't as as sort of like explosive or um, uh, or revelatory. But tell me, um, you know, tell me a little bit about what the journey was from Optimal. I mean, you had a successful exit there too. Why don't you spend a little bit of time talking about that, and then a little bit of a time about you know maybe what got you into Freight Friend. Um, it's something you'd been working on for a while, but but maybe kind of marry those two together to kind of draw this into a close? Yeah. So, uh, you know, optimal was uh, the natural place for me to go after I'd worked for somebody, you know, I was about, I licensed optimal before I took the job at echo Mm -hmm. and I had the idea for freight friend before I took the job at echo. And in fact, started the idea for it and even building it before I took the job at echo. And I was looking for a name for this company, and I thought of my freight. So I go on to whatever, uh, you know, GoDaddy or whatever it was, and I look up my freight, and it's owned by some company called Echo Global Logistics with Doug Wagner's name there. He was the CEO. And, and I was like, who is in Chicago brokerage that I don't know? Who are these mm-hmm. guys? So I picked up the phone and I called Doug, and we had coffee together. And they ended up hiring me. I had already leased a space for Optimal Freight on Ravenswood down the block from where we mm-hmm. started um, from Joe Hayes, the landlord then. And he, Joe let me, I had to get out of that lease. Joe let me out. Uh, and I went to work for somebody for three years, which was for me really hard. I learned a lot about, you know, working in a larger corporate environment and, and a lot of other things. And I introduced a lot of other people to the Truckload 101, right? Uh, of course, you came there, had, which was a great introduction. Had the wonderful opportunity to work with Ben Schuchart, who really came for a very short time to Echo and made a big impact uh, on Echo, on me. And I think I made an equally big impact on him. And is still a friend, you know, one of my best friends. Brilliant guy. Um, um, but so... When I left, so really a freight friend, this idea, which started from, you know, my kids getting on MySpace, I think the idea of having this friendship based marketplace came out of that. And that 
um, really that that was a great way for people to collaborate. I always taught up. I always thought about technology in terms of how it impacted people operationally. That's where my approach to technology always was. So I really put that on hold when I went to work for Echo and put Optimal Freight on hold when I went to work to Echo. So it was easy that right when I left there, I just jumped, dove into both of those things. Right. Freight Friend was a marketplace only. When Optimal Freight started, I had a brokerage. I knew that when CH sold, when Backhauler sold to CH, the TMS technology expertise was out of the bag and that was disseminated around the industry. So I thought I could find a TMS off the shelf. What it didn't have is the full CRM functionality and the matching functionality to do it the right way that I had built originally. So I uh, ended up choosing MercuryGate and helped them build to improve their brokerage side. And then I enhanced Freight Friend to be not just a marketplace, but also a full CRM because I needed that for optimal freight. And, and you know that. Um, that's mm -hmm. how you got very familiar with Freight Friend initially um, and did it as a side project. But Schneider ran their entire carrier sales team on Freight Friend for four years mm -hmm. um, and a number of other really large clients in an old legacy .NET platform. But it was a half time. It was a side job for me while I was running Optimal Freight. I had originally partnered with MercuryGate um, to be part of their suite, thinking they would sell it. You know, Monica and I became very dear friends and um, then we chose to go our separate ways. It didn't work out the way I wanted it. I, I, you know, I, maybe I wasn't willing to give up control at the end of the day uh, and I took it back. And then when I sold Optimal Freight uh, to TFI in the end of 2018, middle of 2018, I went full time into Freight Friend, found a development team to rebuild it from the ground up. And really, for me, this has been a riot. Because not only do I have the creative process of building a business, but I'm learning an I've never built a technology business before, right? I've built mm -hmm. operational brokerages and technology for them, but this is building a technology business and SaaS model and customer success and carrier success and managing a, a, a really having control of managing a dev team and product involved in that. And, and so I'm having a wonderful time. It will, its success will be determined on my ability to bring in talent and give them the space to really flourish. Um, but, but we're blessed to have a phenomenal dev team. And I think our technology blows everybody else's away. There's a lot of people, everybody else who's trying to do any procurement related stuff away. And, um, you know, Ryan, you've talked about it, that a TMS can't do everything well. And that the TMS of the future it can't I mean, do even everything adequately. Right. And let so alone the, well. So, I mean, Ryan, you can share your feelings about it and have, but I, I wholeheartedly agree that TMS should be about execution and should play well mm -hmm. with others mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. connect to the latest, greatest for pricing, for procurement, for compliance, for back office. And Freight Friends focus on the procurement space, built on the concept of build relationships with people. Those relationships need to matter and drive freight and utilize technology to make that relationship as efficient as possible. It kind of sounds to me like, you know, and I'm, I love that you have fun with Freight Friend and you know that I'm a big, I'm a big fan of it. I, I always have been. And I, and I love what you've built to this point. And my last, here's my last question for you before we wrap up, you know, you, you, um, you've said some of your businesses haven't been as successful as you wanted them to be or the exit or, or they haven't gotten as big. Has how, how do you how do you think about that in the spectrum of success and failure? 
Like, is that like, it seems like you look more at the successes. I think I've become more accepting of my, who I am. Maybe that's a cop out though. I'm a startup guy. That's my comfort zone. I like zero. Mm-hmm. And, and my ability to really ramp will be dependent even now. I mean, let's talk about Costa, right? Mm-hmm. Charlie Safro uh, connected me with Costa when she had just started CS recruiting. Um, and I think she'd probably say that was one of the best people placements she ever did. And I did not give Costa the place to become what he, the space to become what he could have become. And, and I, you know, you maybe as well, Jeff, there's a lot of history of that. So my, if I'm, you know, I'm old, but I'm not old enough that I still don't have to learn new tricks. And that new trick for me will be finding talent, attracting them because of my reputation, my intelligence, my creativity. I can talk a good game, but then giving them the space to take it and run with it. And I think Freight Friend is positioned to do it. I'll tie this back into the Bulls really quickly. I I, um, I just finished watching Last Dance, as I mentioned earlier, or I didn't mention this to you earlier. Uh, I just finished watching The Last Dance. And one of the things they said about Jordan in there was, and I didn't grow up in Chicago, so like I wasn't a big Jordan guy. I'm not a big, you know, Bulls fan, but but um, you know, they said they said about Jordan, like he lived in the moment sort of better than anybody else, right? And he 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 wasn't worried about kind of what happened before. He um he kind of has this and 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 I've I've had this philo- or I've I've tried to learn this philosophy and I've said out loud before, it's like it's not about the it's not about the last one, it's about the next one. You and I had, I remember one time you and I got into it a little bit at Optimal where you were saying like, you know, we had some problem with the shipment and you're like, Ryan, you don't, you don't seem to care. And I'm like, no, 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 I I care. But like, I'm focused on, I like, I can't, I'm not going to beat my chest and cry over it. Like I'm focused on what do I do about it? It's not about the last one. It's about the next one. I'll figure out what happened. I'll deal with that later once the problem is solved. But like crying over spilt milk doesn't do anything. But it sounds to me like, and it sounds to me, honestly, like in in this whole journey, like your your philosophy on it today, and it maybe wasn't your philosophy always, is just keep going. Like the real failure almost is giving up. Like if you just keep going, something will happen. And 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 I think like it's not success. It's you know success isn't everything, and like failure isn't losing everything. Right. Like and success isn't necessarily gaining everything. If you try something and it fails, it doesn't mean you go to zero, you're bankrupt, you're homeless, you're, you know, like, you know, you're begging for money on the side of the street for most folks. Like it means that you can go. It just means you have to keep trying. And if you quit, that's when you're fucked. Is that a fair way to kind of summarize how you think about it today? Well, I would change that. I, I, okay. I, I think, once again, it's the journey that success and failure have become much less important, that I'm comfortable in my legacy, even if I do nothing else. Mm-hmm. I'm comfortable uh, financially to some degree. Um, and, and my kids are amazing. Right. Somehow with with the way my journey went, I have. Uh, two boys and a stepdaughter who are three amazing individuals. And I learned from them every day. 
Um, uh, my son, you know, my oldest son in business, I turned to him for, for learning every day on SaaS technology. And he's building a tech startup himself uh, called Early Bird, which is in the fintech space, which is uh, providing um, uh, um, financial literacy to newborns and to young people uh, uh, through a gifting program. Um, but um, so I think the journey, it's not about, I'm much less focused on success about failure. I'm focused on enjoying the ride. And then the secondly is switch regret to reflection so that you can learn and so that the ride is a progression and you are growing. And uh, yeah, so so that's different, yeah, I think than what, how you described it. Okay, that's fair. Thanks for sharing the time. This was an enjoyable, I, I think this was great. Um, thank you for sharing the time. Th again, thanks for everything you've, you've done for me in my career uh, and before doing this podcast. You know, uh, and t tell people where they can learn more about Freight Friend or about you. Yeah, FreightFriend.com. Please go look. Um, and Noam at FreightFriend.com. I've always liked to use my first name as my email address. Um, please reach out and would love to talk. Ryan, uh, thank you so much for bringing me on this podcast. It's really been great. You're awesome at leading these kind of things and at everything that Ryan. you do. And and thank you for, uh, you for thank you for everything you've done with me because I know it wasn't always easy. So all this all the steps along my journey that you were a part of were really meaningful to me. It was rarely easy, and also <laughs> I appreciate you. I appreciate you saying I'm great at everything I do. I can say for certain I am not. Yeah. But I'm trying shit to see a lot what happens. Yeah. I'm good at a lot of things that people see, but I'm really terrible at everything that nobody sees. Anyway. Thanks a ton, Noam. I really appreciate it. And for everybody listening, thanks for being a part of me. Don't forget to subscribe. And, and uh, until next time, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Founder Studio. A couple quick things before you go. We're proudly hosted on the Logistics of Logistics Network. To hear more content from the industry's top leaders in supply chain and logistics, check out thelogisticsoflogistics.com. And until next time, onward and upward.